Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 30th, 2018. This is episode 2259 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Monday. That means it's a listener feedback show. This is where you send me emails. If you'd like to get your email submitted for a show like today, here's how you get that done. Send me an email. Send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And then do the following. Put TSPC in the subject line. TSPC in the subject line. And then you know, say article for Jack, question for Jack, comment for Jack, something like that in the subject line. But TSPC first. That will make sure if it goes in the spam folder, I get it out. And then give me your question or make your point in one or two sentences. Hit the return key a couple times and give me your details. If you do that, you're more likely to get screened uh, and into the show. I do get hundreds of emails a week, so I can't get them all on. I do read them all. I have people sometimes say, well, what's your real email address? Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I also have like jackspearco at gmail.com, jj at tpswiki.net. I mean, there's a bunch of Do you know what? They all go to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, for filtering, I use rules inside of Outlook. Yes, I'm old school. Um, there's only one email that really receives everything. It's the Survival Podcast email. Uh, I do read all my own email. I don't have a professional screener or anything like that. I guess I'm my own professional screener. Just some things that have come up recently with people talking to me by instant message on Facebook and all like, well, what's your really? It's the one I say every day. Probably the most public email in America, I would imagine, that somebody actually answers. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. We have a bunch of stuff today. What a new infectious disease report tells us about pandemic threats. Um, thoughts on crypto-secured loans, the good, the bad, and the extremely ugly. Uh, why you could not give me, much less sell me a timeshare. Uh, what every, I got a little mini-mead segment here, like a mini-mead ex- episode in the middle here. It just all came in together. Why every mead maker should make paramead and use ginger. The question is really about my paramead. Um, how do you know when mead is done? And how long can a ferment stay in a primary fermenter? Uh, well, it depends. We'll get to that when we get to it. Um, why micro air conditioners simply don't work? Because thermodynamics is why. Uh, Maxine Waters says calling Democrats socialists is going, quote-unquote, too far. Now, as dumb as this person is, I mean, literally, there should be, if you look up idiot in the dictionary, her picture should be there. I generally wouldn't care what she had to say, but this one, there's just something here that's too delicious not to share with you guys. And and, and the problem for people like Maxine Waters is everything is recorded today, and then this guy you know named Jack has one of these memories where he just doesn't forget shit. Yeah, we'll have a delicious moment with Maxine Waters saying calling Democrats socialists is going too far. Uh, The easiest and lowest cost way to start a podcast And then books I'd recommend for a 15-year-old. It's a pretty long list, and the guy asking the question can decide for himself. But I think this is an interesting look into the mind that is Jack Spierko, because I've probably read thousands of books over the years, and these are the ones that just spring to mind right away. And probably if I thought about this harder, I could come up with a better list for a 15-year-old. Some of this might be a little advanced for a 15-year-old. Some of it may not be wholly appropriate for a 15-year-old. Uh, but I think it's an interesting question, and I'll take my best shot at it for you guys. All of that in just a moment. Before we get into that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is RidgeWallet.com. 
Bridge Wallet is the way to minimize your life when it comes to your wallet and get better protection for potential identity theft. The Ridge Wallet is a really unique, innovative product. Uh, it's a metal wallet. It's about the size of a credit card, but a little bit thicker. It's attached by a couple of adhesive bands. And what it does is it lets you take all your cards and everything like that and just kind of slide them in there. And it's got a clip you can use as a money clip. I've actually started using that clip to clip to the inside of my pocket, kind of like a folder knife does. That means it's always ready, available, and I can just reach in and grab it. I keep my cash separate from my wallet anyway. I've always done that. You want my wallet, go ahead. I'll, I'll cancel my credit cards, and you really didn't get away with much. Um, but this wallet has made my life better. And it's made my life better because when I'm sitting at my desk or driving in my car, I'm not sitting there sitting on the lump of a wallet in my back pocket. It did require me to clean out some things that I thought I needed to carry around all the time. And you know what? Since I did that, I haven't really missed it. Minimizing, it's a way to go. And again, they have shielding that prevents those RFID cards and your, you know, your IDs, your, your credit cards, everything has them now, from being picked up by like an $8 product you can buy on uh, eBay and just go around sweeping people's butts and, and handbags. My wife has even jumped on board with this, using it for her credit card license, etc., within her purse, not just because of the ID protection, but because of the convenience factor. They're really cool. You can get them at RidgeWallet.com, and with the discount code in the MSB, you can save money on them. And I was kind of surprised when we brought these guys online with us. I started carrying this around. How many times people said, oh, that's the Rich Wallet? I didn't realize how big a company they were and how well-known they were. Uh, I'm glad to have them with us as both a sponsor and a partner in the MSP. That brings me to my other favorite new sponsor. We don't have many new sponsors around here, but uh, brought on this year, early this year in January, brought on ButcherBox.com. ButcherBox is like having your own private shoppers. They go out and find the best high-quality pastured pork, organic poultry, grass-fed beef you can get. Pick out perfect cuts and bring them to your house. Instead of having that happen like, you know, once a week, though, About once a month or every two months, depending on how often you get your box, a box shows up at your house with all the stuff you've picked online in it. It's always great quality. It's packaged well. I mean, I think sometimes people are afraid about receiving something like meat in the mail. No problem at all, guys. I've had this get in on an afternoon and just not had time for it. And because the guys from Butcher Box told me it would be fine left overnight, I did. You know, it's get, it comes on a Friday. You get up Saturday. You're kind of a sleepy Saturday. Go out and check on all the stuff outside, and I'll come in 10 o'clock. Still frozen. Still perfectly fine. Dry ice and the way they package it does a great job. Great quality product. Um, I really enjoy having this select meat brought to my home every day or every every month, and I think you will too. Check them out at ButcherBox.com. Remember, you can get a discount as an MSB member, and that discount will let you get free bacon for life. That's a deal, man. Jack got it for you. Check them out, ButcherBox.com. And with David Verne, our number one contributor now to TSP Wiki, with the history segment still on hiatus, uh, I am continuing with my little history segment for you guys called This Year, This Day in History. So I've been using History Channel for this, and I have links to all these so you can check them out if you want to. There's a bunch of other things that happened on This Day in History. This is the one that I found most interesting today. Uh, on July 30th, 1945, the USS Indianapolis was bombed. Um, it was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine and sinks within minutes in shark-infested waters. Only 317 of the 1,196 men on the boat survived. However, the Indianapolis had already completed its major mission, the delivery of key components of the atomic bomb that would be dropped a week later at Hiroshima uh, to Titan Island in the South Pacific. The Indianapolis made its delivery to Titan Island on July 26, 1945, 
The mission was top secret and the ship's crew was unaware of its cargo. After leaving Titan, the Indianapolis sailed into the U.S. military's Pacific headwaters at Guam. It was given orders to meet the battleship Idaho at Letty Gulf in the Philippines to prepare for the invasion of Japan. Shortly after midnight on July 30th, halfway between Guam and Let Gulf, a Japanese sub blasted the Indianapolis, sparking an explosion to split the ship and caused it to sink approximately 12 minutes. With about 300 men trapped inside, another 900 went into the water, where many died from drowning, shark attacks, dehydration from the explosion. Help did not arrive until four days later on August 2nd, when an anti-submarine plane on routine patrol happened upon the men radioed for assistance. On August 6, 1945, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, inflicting nearly 130,000 casualties and destroying more than 60% of the city. On August 9, the second atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, where casualties estimated at over 66,000. Meanwhile, the U.S. government kept quiet about the Indianapolis tragedy until August 15th in order to guarantee the news would be overshadowed by President Truman's announcement that Japan had surrendered. So all of these men died, perished, On this mission, they brought the atomic bomb to where it would be launched from, um, which is effectively what ended the war. And our government decided it would be a good idea to just not talk about it until Japan surrendered so that nobody would really pay attention. And you might think that, how well would that work? You're talking about a war where you know thousands of casualties came in on lists every day. The nation on some level had grown numb to the amount of death that was coming back from World War II. It was also growing weary at this point. And had the war not ended when it did, I don't know how much longer we would have fought. I can tell you this, though. Japan would have not lasted long enough for it to have mattered. Japan was on its absolute last legs at this point and was ready to, to acquiesce anyway. The bomb did accelerate that, though. But as I'm telling this story... 300 men were trapped inside and went down with the ship. 900 went into the water. Many died from drowning and shark attacks. You might think that story sounds familiar. Maybe you actually heard about this story in history before. Or maybe you heard about it somewhere else. You see, this story was actually probably made the most famous in modern times, back in the 1970s, with the hit movie Jaws, where the character Quinn sitting with uh, Chief Brody, and I can't remember the other guy's character's name now, but the uh, the scientist guy, when they're all in the boat together, there's this moment of happiness and calm before everything really goes bad toward the final component of the movie, where they're laughing and telling stories and swapping stuff, and all of a sudden Quinn gets serious. He tells a story. He tells a story of dropping off the atomic bomb, being hit by a torpedo, going into the water, and only 300 men coming out. I think a lot of people when that movie happened had already begun to forget the lessons of World War II and thought it was just something they made up from the movie for the movie. It was based on an actual story, one that occurred this day in 1945. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your feedback for today's show. We're going to start out uh, with a report that I think is, well, it's pretty damn interesting. John sent this to us. And it is a new study that's out by what would happen if we had a pandemic. And, and this is what I think is interesting. The new strain of flu that they hypothetically created in this study uh, called Clade X 
had something really close to home in it for me. When I first started this show, one of the things that I said could ever actually become the global disaster, the, the, the true super huge shit, it's the fan that's, that, that causes not just its direct problems, but its indirect problems, shortages of supplies, um, uh, global economic recession and depression, etc., was a, a pandemic. And what I've said about it before, and I still say today, is this is not an if, it's a when. And then the second question is, well, how bad? And what I said was that you don't need to have what people think you need to have. A, um, a flu that would kill like half the people that got it or something like that. So if you had something that was relatively contagious, you know, a, a fairly, fairly good infection rate, well, even a moderate death rate, you could end up with an extremely high number of dead people and a big problem. Here's the headline on Business Insider. A leading medical institution created a simulation that shows how a new disease could kill 900 million people, and it reveals how unprepared we are. This is like the bullet points as though it actually happened. So this is the simulation. The Claydex simulation created by John Hopkins Center for Health Security shows the vulnerable world, how vulnerable the world is to the spread of pandemic virus. Uh, it's a simulation. Political experts from the U.S. try to figure out how to respond to the emergence of a new and deadly disease. Despite being only a moderately contagious and moderately lethal virus, at the end of the day, 20 months in a simulated time, the virus would have killed 150 million people. According to Scenario Creator, if efforts to create a vaccine continued to fail, a disease like this could kill 900 million or more uh, than 10% of the global population. The committee to advise the president first met approximately one month after the virus appeared. There had been more than four, this is the study, there had been uh, the simulation. There had been more than 400 cases and 50 deaths so far, mostly split between Frankfurt, Germany and Caracas, Venezuela. Patients presented with fever, cough, confusion, and a disturbing number of cases encephalitis or swelling of the brain caused patients to fall into a potentially fatal coma. Researchers, researchers had been able to isolate what appeared to be a new pathogen, a disease-causing agent. The virus seemed to be a new type of parainfluenza virus from a family of respiratory viruses normally cause mild illnesses like the cold. Scientists studying the disease couldn't identify where the virus fit in the parainfluenza family, so they referred to it as clade X. Health authorities said clade X, which appeared to spread by coughing and to take up a week before patients started showing severe symptoms, had pandemic potential. The situation described here is fictional. In part of a scenario created by researchers John Hopkins for Health Security designed to show how real policy experts and government decision makers would respond to a similar situation. The scenario was designed to be completely realistic with a disease that could plausibly exist in a world that has the exact same resources to respond as we do now. On May 15th, when the Claydex simulation was played out in real time, the people acting out the scenario were the sorts of individuals who'd be responding to the situation in real life. The players included Senate Majority Leader, Tom, former Senate Majority Leader, Leader Tom Daschle, Indiana Representative Susan Brooks, former CDC Director Julie Gridburning, uh, and others with extensive experience. Yet by the day's end, representing 20 months after the start of the outbreak, there were 150 million dead around the globe and 15 to 20 million deaths in the U.S. alone. With no vaccine for the illness yet ready, the death toll would have been expected to climb. You can read the rest of this if you want to. Uh, but the upshot is, if they never figured out what to do about it, uh, eventually it could kill 900 million before it finally kind of ebbed itself out. 
and the upshot is also that we are wholly unprepared for something like this. And my response to that is, well, duh. The other point they make that I think is interesting is how lucky we've been in the past. They bring up SARS, for instance. This actually, the numbers in this, the contagion rate and the death rate were almost identical to SARS. So why did SARS not do what this did? Because SARS did not become highly contagious until people reached advanced stages of the disease. Therefore, it tended to spread only within hospitals and among healthcare workers and what have you. And once we realized that was going on and we were able to identify this is a SARS case, they were able to use quarantine and the way they handled patients presenting with it to basically kill it off by stopping its spread. So the difference was this disease in the simulation became contagious before it heavily affected the individual. That's not a big leap. That's not a big leap. Really, it's not. And I think the thing that people need to understand about this is the, the concept of doing a doomsday prepper thing and having a bunker and being prepared to live in a hole in the ground for two years or something like that. It, it's just not It's just not feasible. Not for 99.9999% of the people out there. And the other people that can do it, they're probably wealthy enough they'd have better solutions than that. A pandemic is going to require quarantine. That's what it's going to require. And it's going to disrupt the flow of goods and services. It's going to destroy the economy, for a time anyway. And again, the questions are not if. It is when and how bad. When and how bad. It could be way worse than this. What if the mortality rate in something like this was 20 to 25%? The good news. The next one probably won't be as bad as this. We've had them before. We, the 1919 flu pandemic killed tons of people worldwide, etc. The, the good news, if there is any, is that these illnesses tend to be somewhat self-limiting. To go back to a point where they really did the kind of damage that we, we, we really think of today and cower about, you kind of got to go back to the Black Plague. And even it, it eventually petered itself out. The bad news is, if you had something that spread like that today, uh, as far as the way it did spread back then, it would spread a lot faster because of air travel, etc. And and the, the upshot of this is we shouldn't sit around in fear um, we shouldn't say, hey, I don't need to worry about my retirement because there's going to be a pandemic and wipe everybody out anyway. But we do need to acknowledge the fact that it's possible. It's not only possible, it's probable. Just it probably won't be this bad, as this study indicates, but it could be worse. It could also be highly isolated. You could end up with it decimating parts of the planet that have the least in medical care, and places like the United States and more advanced societies, uh, with proper quarantines, it might be highly limited in its ability to spread. We just don't know. And that's just another reason to be prepared, if nothing else, to be able to stay in place for at least 60 to 90 days. Not necessarily living like the, you know, the, the king of England or something like that for 90 days. But when we talk about having that 60 to 90 days of supplies of, available, this is the reason. Most of these instances, if you could do that, we would have some grip on it and some ability to have some idea of where and when it's the most risky to do things and some adaptation taking place. And there's really nothing else you can do. There's nothing else like disease when it comes to the destruction of mankind. 
doesn't care how old you are. I mean, the Spanish flu killed young, healthy people more than it killed old, sick people. It doesn't care what your race is. It doesn't care what your socioeconomic stance is. It doesn't care about borders. It doesn't care about laws. It's a disease. And it should be an impetus for us to all, every once in a while, pull back and take a look at our preps. Next up, I have a question, totally different one. This one's on what are called crypto-secured loans. So next up, coming from Ben on crypto-secured loans, he says, apparently there are services that allow you to use your crypto as collateral. They give you a U.S. dollar loan when you pay it back with interest, they return your crypto. The advantages seem to be that, one, your credit history doesn't matter. Uh, you bypass capital gains tax by just not selling off crypto cash you need the loan for. Uh, you're not risking a capital loss by selling it off in a bear market. You're not risking missing out on future gains by cashing out on your crypto at low percentage increases above cost base as opposed to holding long term. Thanks, Ben. So there's some legitimate stuff there. So let's say that I needed to, uh, to free up five grand. And I had it in crypto, but I didn't want to spend the crypto. And I have enough cash flow that I know I can pay it back. And if I really had to, I'll sell the crypto, but I'd prefer not to. What I'm able to do, if the service is legitimate, is basically deposit $5,000 worth of, let's say, Bitcoin. Actually, you'd have to do more like $7,000. I think it's the one I looked at was 70% of the amount you posted you could borrow. And then that would be held in something like a smart contract for a period of time, which time I would repay the fiat money. When I repaid the fiat money, the lender, because there's another person on the other side of this transaction, would get their cash plus their interest, and then the contract would release my Bitcoin back to me. Should I fail to make payment, the contract will eventually release the crypto to the lender, and then he can use it. I'm sure there's a fee in the middle charge for all this stuff to make it happen. Well, let's talk about the good. The good is everything that Ben said. It doesn't matter what your credit is. Um, you bypass capital gains. It's, that, that is one of probably the most strong arguments is that if I go to cash, um, I lose my gain by paying tax on it. And, and for a lot of people that have been holding crypto for a long time that have a significant amount of crypto, I mean, you're talking about a big hit. You might be taking almost you know, paying tax on 80 to 90% of that money or more. It's a good problem to have, but it is a problem. Um, you're not risking capital loss. So let's say that, you know, Bitcoin's had a pretty good rally recently, but it was down as low as like five, five grand or 5,500 bucks from an all time high of like 17,000. And if you needed some a few months ago, it's a pretty big hit to have taken when you look, let's say you, you've blown two Bitcoin and, and you look now and that costs you about six grand. Okay. I get that. And so then you're lock you're locking in your long term position basically, and I guess all that's true. My problem is you really shouldn't have money in Bitcoin that you can't afford to have in Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. That's your other column of investments, right? It's like silver. It's, it's like main hardcore investments, equity investments like real estate, uh, tools and systems of support and preps and everything else. And then, like, after that, then you have, like, you know, gold and silver. And then in the, the other column is things like cryptocurrency. And that's because it's a high-risk thing. We don't really know what's going to happen there. So if you're relying on that, ugh. I guess the other side of it is if you have it, you have it. And if you wanted to finance something, 
it's probably a pretty good way to go mathematically unless the entire market hits the dirt, in which case I guess the lender's the one taking more of the risk. Because when that currency got sold off, you'd sell it now at a loss or much less of a gain. And, and I don't know how they really like, how does that get made up if there's some huge dump and what's in the middle of this? So the next thing is uncertainty. And that's, I'm going to call that the bad. Theoretically, if this were done with something like Ethereum with a smart contract, there'd be no way to cheat if the system was set up and the smart track contract was legitimate. That this could be done trustless. That I could come in and say, I got 10 grand, I'll loan people, and people could borrow that money. And it's also, I'm okay with the, the terms, which is the collateral is, is you know, more than the, the potential loss. So that if they, somebody puts in, somebody wants my 10,000, you know, they're, they're putting up like $13,000 worth of Ethereum. You have to do the math figured out, but somewhere like $13,50, something like that, right? $13,500 worth of Ethereum. And I'm okay with that as the borrower. And I, I'm, I'm willing to take the risk with that collateral. Then I really can't lose if it legitimately is a real smart contract. And as a, as a, as a borrower, I know I've got my money. I'm outspending it. If I'm willing to risk that Ethereum, then I know what I'm doing, and the worst thing that can happen is I don't pay it back and I lose my Ethereum. doesn't hurt my credit. Not a lot of legal recourse to be taken by either side here. You've agreed to terms, and they're executed by the contract. However, there is a lot that can go wrong in between there with, with this money in limbo. Then there's the what I would call the hideously, disgustingly ugly here. How do you know it's a legitimate smart contract-based system? Because there's all kinds of scams using cryptocurrency. Put in, you know, half a Bitcoin and we'll pay out interest of, you know, 1% a day. And they're Ponzi schemes. You put your money in and they do pay out. And they do pay out. And they do pay out. And people start talking about them and other people jump in. It's 1% a day. Ah! Wow, it's crazy. Ah, 300% a year. Ah! And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody's like, well, I... I think this has gone long enough. I want my original money out. And they go to take it out, and it won't come out. They'll say something stupid like there's a security problem in your account or something. There's no one to talk to. There's nothing you can do. Actually, you could go buy software to put up sites like this. When you start getting to a situation where people are actually putting real money and crypto into a system, it's a Ponzi scheme's dream. You know, a guy that does Ponzi, it's his dream. Especially with a, with a you know seventy percent collateral ratio, there's all kinds of things that could happen there. Like what? Oh, I don't know. Like it's not really a smart contract based system, and there really is no lenders on the other side that are legitimate, and they just scam you for thirty percent of your money. And a short term scam, and a long term scam. We scam both sides. Joe comes in, we take his ten grand, right? Uh, we take his seven grand, let's say, to make it. So we take seven thousand dollars from Joe, and Tom comes in and puts in ten thousand dollars worth of Ethereum. We take that too. We give you know Tom Joe seven thousand dollars, and we tell you know whoever I said Jim that his his ten thousand of Ethereum collateral is sitting there, and there's X amount of time on the loan, and that when the loan gets paid back, he gets he gets his money back, and the Ethereum goes back, and then you know the other party does pay the cash back. But they don't get any Ethereum. 
and and the other party doesn't get the the money at all until the loans mature. You see where this is going? And then all of a sudden, we get cash times two plus the Bitcoin, and we haul ass. You see how that would work? And and maybe some of this works for a while while it builds up before we cash in. So unless there was, in fact, a verifiable third-party auditable smart contract running this, and just because it says that doesn't mean that's the case, unless... You, you know, there's people that are third party that can legitimately be trusted. They know how to audit a system like this. They say this system is in fact legitimate. Then I see this as the the, the potentially largest uh, Ponzi scheme, you know, outside of something you know that's, that's Wall Street based or or state based ever. And probably the longer it goes, the bigger the scam can become. So. The theory is not horrible, though I'm not big on borrowing money in the first place. But the potential for abuse is massive. And it can only be subverted by, again, an audible, third-party, verifiable system. And just because the website says that doesn't mean that's what's there. Um, It's a lot of money at play, and there's a lot of ways to screw people with it. Just my thoughts. Next up comes from John. John says, what's your personal opinion of timeshares? P.S. I graduated school two years ago with 52000 in student loan debt. I've paid down 47 of it. I'm almost home free. Thanks for the podcast, the valuable wisdom you give us every day, Jack. Well, John, you sound like a bright, energetic, hardworking individual that realizes that pretty soon you're going to have some money because you're going to pay off that student loan debt. Um, and if you can knock out forty-seven k in two years... Uh, you're less than a few months now. You're going to have all this paid off. And all that money you've been putting away into your student loans, you're going to be able to put away into the John Fund. The John Fund has various places that, that money can eventually end up. It can end up in stocks, bonds, simple savings accounts, CDs, real estate, you know, invested in business, tucked away under your pillow, silver, gold, and even a little bit of cryptocurrency. Do you know where John's John Fund should never go? To a timeshare. Ever, 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 ever. If you came up to me and tried to sell me a timeshare, I would probably punch you in the face. Like seriously, that's how you get rid of timeshare salespeople. You tell them one time, no, I'm not interested. And when they open their mouth again, you pop them dead square between the eyes because that's the only way to shut them up because they're programmed automatons designed to screw you out of money. They're either so stupid that they believe what they're selling you or... They're so nefarious, they don't care that they're screwing you. Either way, stupid or nefarious, they need to be punched in the face. There is no good from a timeshare. Before I continue, I will say there is a thing that you would more accurately call fractional ownership. Fractional ownership would be you and me and two other parties decide we'd all like a house in the Bahamas. And the four of us together form a property holders association and we buy the property collectively. We split out any money made by renting the property when none of us are using it. We set aside specific periods of time that each of us has access to the property. Anytime the property is unrented, we can use it. And we manage it like an individual business. We each have a 25% share in. There is no third party unless we have somebody that sees to uh, maintenance and upkeep on the property. When that comes down to that, we decide who that person is. We fire and hire based on who does the best. That is a fractional ownership. It is done with things like real estate. is done with high expensive things that people want access to, and they also want ownership and equity in, like let's say, uh, jets. 
I have a good friend from high school that has had fractional ownership in an aircraft um, since he was in high school. So it's not that the concept of owning a piece of something cannot work, but timeshares are not that. Timeshares are an obligation to pay for something you will seldom use as advertised. Uh, they are completely the devil, and they should not even exist. They are the epitome of the old phrase, a fool and his money are soon parted. If they were legitimate investments, you wouldn't fill out a form to win a car at the mall and then be told you won something, like a free vacation to uh, a lake, where when you go out there, your two days that you're supposed to be there on vacation for free as a surprise award that you won uh, is constantly riddled with salespeople that need to be punched in the throat. Okay? They, they wouldn't sell them that way if they were legitimate investments of any value. They will always tell you you can sell them. Only if you can find somebody more stupid than yourself, and you're not going to have a marketing team and an apparatus set up to set this thing up, uh, in an easy payment plan system. The average cost of a timeshare today in the United States is $14,000 with an average maintenance fee of $650 a year. If you put that money into a mutual fund and left it alone for 30 years, you'd have over a million dollars. He'd go to Europe every year for, for two weeks and never spend all of that money for the rest of your life. It's ridiculous, it's preposterous, and you shouldn't do it. John, that's my opinion. Don't ever put any of John Inc.'s money into a timeshare. It's a bad deal. If you have one already, if anybody's out there has one already, the best thing to do is try to sell it back to the company you got it from, and that'll convince you that I'm right when they won't do it. But you need to call them up and ask them what they're selling timeshares for today, and they'll tell you, we can't tell you. Lie to them. Tell them you're thinking about buying another one. They'll probably tell you, we won't want you to come in. You want another uh, free trip to uh, say what nail or whatever. Now, it's a scam. Don't do it. Um, but sometimes you can strong arm them into um, to buying it back or selling yours to another party. What you can tell them is, I'll take 10% and pay double commission or something like that. Anything to get rid of it. In the end, you, you probably can't sell it. You put it on Craigslist, you can do whatever you want. You can try to pray it away. It's not going nowhere. And... The company that I actually would recommend, and Dave Ramsey recommends these people, which is why I'm confident in recommending them, is called Timeshare Exit Team. And basically, you're going to lose your ass, okay? But you're going to get out of it, and you're not going to have your credit screwed up, and they're not going to be able to call you for the rest of your life harassing you. There's, there's ways to get out of these things, because they're so bad, there's legal provisions made to get out of them. Do not go to a timeshare sales company that says they can sell it for you. They'll charge you a fee and then fail. That's what they're going to do. Because if it was easy to sell them, you wouldn't need a company to get rid of it. It's a bad idea. Don't do it. And I'm going to tell you right now, any of you that are ever presented with this, no matter how good it sounds, let the words of Jack Spirico live forever in your ear. Don't do it. And if necessary, punch the person trying to sell it to you in the throat. I know most of you would say that's a NAP violation, which is the non-aggression principle. Uh, in the, as long as they're not trying to prevent you from leaving, you know, if you try to get up and leave and they physically restrain you, punch them in the freaking throat. You're being abducted. That's what that means, right? But I know most of you don't want to punch somebody in the throat. I'm using that, I'm using that language to reinforce how bad an idea this is. That I would, I would actually rather see most people punch the guy and get fined for it and spend a couple days in jail then be stuck with a timeshare. That's how bad it is. That's how much it sucks. 
Don't do it. I have family members that have done it. I don't know anybody that's had a timeshare for any length of time. It's like, gee, I'm glad I have this. When they're honest about it. You know, when they're honest about it. Because, you know, you always say, well, hey, this sounds like a pretty good deal. Would you consider selling your timeshare? Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, just like that. Because people never want to admit when they made a mistake. I'll put it this way. Back in the early 80s, a whole bunch of the Mickey Mouse boots from the Vietnam era showed up on the surplus market. And you'd see guys hunting, walking around with these big, blow-up, stupid Mickey Mouse boots. If you don't know what they are, Google them, you'll see. And there were these boots that you basically inflated with air. And they were just a stupid idea, and they didn't work. That's why the military stopped using them. But every guy that said them, oh, yeah, they're great to keep my feet warm. Do you know why? Because if you're walking around with Mickey Mouse boots on, you don't want to admit that they're not working. But next season, they were mysteriously gone. Oh, yeah, I couldn't get any more. I had a hole in them or whatever, you know, because they didn't work. That's the timeshare in a nutshell. Don't do it. Um, next up, I got a couple in a row on Mead. Zach says, hey, Jack, I've got a quick question for you about making pear melomel. Melomel is a fruit mead, by the way. I've got some fresh pears and was wanting to make some sort of a mead with them. I know you've mentioned making a pear ginger mead before. I've heard of com combining pear and cinnamon as well. Do you have a recipe you could recommend looking to use these pears before they go bad on me? Thanks for everything you do, Zach. Well, one thing I'll say about making mead, that the more the fruit can be consumed by the yeast, the better. The more flavor and extraction and alcohol, sugar conversion, everything we get from the, the fruit. So if you have fruit that you want to make meat out of and you don't have time to do it now, chop it up, throw it in a Ziploc bag, throw it in the freezer. And when it defrosts, it'll be this mushy mushness. And you know what? That's great. That's all the little cell walls. right? Think about it, a cell, a plant cell. It's basically a little capsule. It's got a wall that holds everything together. There's a lot of liquid inside a cell wall. And when you freeze, the cells actually rupture. It pop. And so when you defrost it, that's why your fruit goes to that mushy consistency. When you want to make mead, that's fantastic. Meads and wines, frozen fruit, go together like peanut butter and jelly, all right? So if you need some time there, cut them up, throw them in a the freezer in a Ziploc bag. You vacuum seal them if you want to. And if you're going to be more than a couple months before you get to making it, go ahead and do that. Um, otherwise, fresh is fine, too. You don't have to freeze them. But it does help so much. I'm, I, a lot of times when I make meat out of fresh fruit, I'm tempted to like throw them in a Ziploc bag and freeze them overnight. I, I really am because I know that I'm going to get a better kind of extraction out of them. Uh, as far as my recipe, my basic recipe for most fruits is between two and four cups, depending on the contribution that I want to the gallon. With pears kind of chopped up, not mashed into a puree, uh, it's going to be about four cups to the gallon is my preferred, preferred method. Uh, and yes, ginger is fantastic. Um, I would go with somewhere between one and two ounces. Remember, you can always increase ginger, but you can't make it go away. So start out with about an ounce of chopped fresh ginger uh, to about four cups of pears, three pounds of honey to the gallon, but you're going to make about, as I always say with small batch, you're going to make about three quarters to 0.8 to 0.85 gallons uh, in, in the container, so there's enough head space for... You know, pears don't go blowing up through the airlock. And we're going to run that fermentation until our heavy fermentation stops. We're then going to rack it over to our secondary. If you want to know what the ginger's contribution at that point is, go ahead and taste it. Now, it's going to be, you know, murky. It's not going to be done. It's going to have a yeasty thing to it. And the pear's actually going to be pretty hard to really get a feel for at this point. But the zing of the ginger, you'll know if you've really got what you want out of it yet. If you don't, 
Chop up maybe another quarter ounce to a half ounce, however much you think you need. Pour a little hot water over it and then put it into your secondary fermenter. Rack on top of it, take clean water, either bottled or something out of something like a Berkey, and top it to the very top. Now you have a full gallon of meat. Affix it with an airlock or a balloon and ferment it till it's done. That's how I make my pear ginger meat. It's fantastic. Cinnamon. Okay, cinnamon has a lot more power, I guess, is the a lot more assertiveness in a mead than ginger does. Ginger fills this background role where I get the pear, I get the honey, and zing, there's the ginger, just like that, right? And that's that's awesome. I've done some cinnamon meads and I like them, but it's really kind of up front, and pear is. Uh, It's a mild contributing factor to a melamol. There's other fruits that have more assertiveness. Apple actually hits a mead more than pear. You get a lot more. And, and apple, now I'm not talking about a sizer, where we're taking apples, apple juice and we're making mead out of it. So we're taking a, a, a honey-infused apple juice. I'm on about pure cut-up pieces of apples, just like the ginger. You get a lot more apple, a more apple-y characteristic. And apple cinnamon, to me... Uh, seemed to work a little bit better. I also did what I called a Sin Vin Gin, uh, which was cinnamon, vanilla, and ginger, and it was just those. That was pretty fantastic. I think cinnamon will overpower your pear, though. That said, if I was going to do a cinnamon mead and go with pears, I would go light on the cinnamon to start out, because you can always add more, but you can't take it away. Use the cinnamon in stick form... And use true cinnamon, i.e. Celion, versus what most of the stuff is that's on the shelves of supermarkets, which is cassia. Okay, that's the, the, the Celion cinnamon, the true sweet cinnamon, has less punch. So it's a little easier to dial in in a mead. I, I don't use cassia cinnamon much at all, but I certainly don't use it in my mead making or my other alcohol uh, experimentations. So, so that's what I'm going to recommend on the cinnamon side if you're going to use it at all. Though I think, again, I would save the cinnamon for the apple and the ginger for the pear, having made both both ways and decided that's kind of the better way to go. The apple ginger, pretty outstanding as well, though. I kind of find that the cinnamon meads kind of, there's so much with cinnamon, it doesn't really need to be going with a fruit. It, it, it's more of, like I said, like the Sinvin Gin. It's more of an herbed mead, uh, which we call a methylogen. And I think that's kind of where I would keep it most of the time. Now, this works out well because Tim asked a question this week, too. How do you know when meat is done? Details, I started my first meat about three weeks ago, and it stopped producing CO2. I noticed a couple of foreign objects, so I was going to change out the airlock. When I did that, it started pulling in air. So I said, F it, and racked it off, thinking it would it would start up again. But it's kind of stalled. Should I just bottle it and chalk it off to the first batch woes and let it go? Thank you for all you do, Tim. Um, if you did a small batch like I do and use the two yeasts like I tell you to do, the the, the, the Pasteur Blanc and the Cuvée, uh, it's probably done. That's the beauty of one-gallon batches of meat. They tend to finish in three to six weeks. How do you know when it's done? Well, Is it clear? That would be first of all. And is it, does it have absolutely no activity whatsoever? So it's not producing any CO2 at all. So one great way, even if you're an airlock person and you don't really like the balloon idea, pop your airlock off, throw a balloon on there for a day. 
If it's producing any CO2 at all, that that, that balloon's going to fill up a little bit. If it doesn't, you're getting no CO2. Then the question is, is it clear? If it's clear, I'd go ahead and bottle it. If it's not clear, since it's a one-gallon batch, it's really easy to make some space in the refrigerator and cold, class, cold crash it. And it should, it should clear then for you in one to two days. If it doesn't, you've got some sort of issue with maybe you got some pectin set or something like that. Maybe you can throw some pectin enzyme at it, but it'll probably be fine. If it's three to four weeks old and it's producing no CO2 and sitting in your fermenter, it's butt clear, it's done. 99.9% of the time. What's the right answer to this? You take a hydrometer reading and you calculate your final gravity. Snore. I'm bored already. I really am. I have made, since I learned this small batch, I wouldn't say method, because I have my own method, this small batch concept from Michael Jordan, I have made literally hundreds of batches of meads. And I have had two that, when I bottled them, they carbonated because they weren't done. Two out of hundreds. One, I kind of knew it, and one caught me by surprise. One can always catch you by surprise. Because the other way you do it is you take a specific gravity reading, and then a week later you take a specific gravity reading. And, and when you stop seeing it drop at all, you know you're done. That's another way you can know you're done. Throw a balloon on it. And if you're using airlocks with bottles where you have the little stoppers, leave the stopper there. Pop the airlock out, and those balloons will go right over those stoppers. If that balloon don't have no air in it after a day or two, it's not producing any CO2. Where else would it go? It's pretty simple. Clear meat is usually finished meat, though. That's that's there. So it was kind of cool that those two came in side by side. We got one more. And they all really do fit together. This one's from Corey in Austin. Corey says, how long can a first ferment sit in a fermenter before it's no good? After your last small batch mead making show, I got inspired to brew something. I cracked open a bottle of apple juice, pour out a cup to mix with sugar, added it back to the apple syrup, leaving headspace, or pitched the yeast and shook it like a Polaroid picture. I then put on the airlock and stuck in the closet for a week. It bubbled and brewed and smelled great. Time to bottle it, or so I told myself. Self, get those flip-top bottles cleaned out and get ready for bottling. Then you can write an email to Jack about how much sugar you should add per quart cider. Make sure it's bubbly. Flat cider tastes like liquid regret. That was probably three months ago. Can I do anything to redeem the batch, or is it time to pour it all out, uh, my homies, and start again? Uh, thanks, Corey and Austin. So you made cider... And you just let it sit in the primary and you never racked it off. It's probably fine. Assuming your airlock didn't go dry and you didn't get some sort of an infection into it. Okay? Um, as long as that's the case, then you're probably good to go. And the yeast is probably still viable enough, no problem whatsoever, to go ahead and carbonate it. If it's a, a, about a gallon, the way I would actually carbonate it, because it's sitting on the bottom of all that sediment, which is probably, you know, the good thing is after all this time, it's probably a very well-formed sediment that doesn't disturb real easily. What I would probably do, I, I would go with a mass prime on this. It's going to work better. I've done the individual bottles, and I've done the mass prime, and even with a small batch, it's better to do a mass prime. So we're going to use about 8 ounces to a 5-gallon batch. So if we divide 8 by 5, we get about 1.6. So you're going to use 1.5 to 2 ounces of sugar to a gallon. And if you have a little less than a gallon, you can back that down. To do this, and you can cheat a little bit here and boost your amount of uh, uh, final product a little bit, go ahead and take about a cup of water, put it on the stovetop, 
and dissolve sugar into it until it's hot enough to dissolve the sugar. Go ahead that and pour that into whatever you're going to use as your bottling vessel. And I really like the two-and-a-half-gallon carboys from Uline that have a spigot on them because instead of doing a bottle siphon with a little wand and all like you do with the bigger batches, you just set that up on a stool and set your bottle in your sink, and you just turn your nozzle. You don't even need a transfer hose then. So we do do a siphon over to leave that sediment behind. Siphon on top of it. Even with it being heated up recently in the pot, we're not going to boiling. It's in there by itself. It's not much volume. It's not going to kill off all your yeast. You're going to get some pull-by from the yeast in there. As you're siphoning it off, go ahead and tilt your bottle really gently to the side, and you'll get a little bit of yeast sediment in there. Try to leave most of it behind, though. That little extra that gets mixed in there will be good to make sure you get a good prime. Uh, bottle in your bottles, leave about a half inch of headspace in your bottles, make sure they're good and clean. I just rinse mine with really hot top tap water. I, I, you know, I do make sure they're clean. Like when I put them away, I make sure they're clean. They don't have nothing in them, no residue. But when it comes to bottling, I, you know, they're closed because of the swing top bottles. And I also save the uh, screw on wine bottles. And I just open them up, turn the hot water on full hot, and as soon as it gets too hot where I don't want to put my hand there anymore, I fill them about halfway up, shake them up, dump them out. That's all I do. Bottle that, cap it, label it. You'll probably have great cider. Now, how long should you versus how long can you? Your situation's one where it's probably not a huge deal. You don't have any fruit. You don't have any solids in there. You don't have anything that's tannic. So all you have is that yeast cake, and that yeast cake can begin to break down over time and create some off flavors, but three months for cider, it's not a big deal. Best practice would have been about one month into it to go ahead and rack it off of that big yeast cake uh, and then do what I just told you to do when you, when you thought it was finished, but it's not that big a deal. Now, with fruits and things like that, I like to go no more than 30 days. It starts to look like a science experiment gone wrong. I want to get it racked out of there. I want to get my top-up top water on there, and I want to get it finishing out. And there's a couple reasons I want to do this. One, I do the top-up method, and I know that I, there's plenty of people who have told me how stupid and wrong I am for that, and, and none of those people seem to ever come here and drink my mead and my wine, so they don't really get an opinion. Um, the thing is, though, one of the excuses they make for this is, well, when you do that, you could kick fermentation back off again. Yeah, so? So what? Now, what they're saying is, if you've calculated this on a gallon, and you now have lost a lot of your volume, and you make it back up with clean water, the stuff that wasn't going to ferment is now going to ferment. You're going to get a watery, weak mead. Remember, I'm building meads on a three-pound-to-the-gallon ratio. So I'm calculating it for a gallon at completion, not at start, okay? So I want that off of all that extra stuff, and I want that top-up water on there so I can get my finish in 45 to 60 days total from the start and be all finished out with no tricks, no hocus-pocus, no magic, no super yeast feedings or anything like that. Just simple, easy, direct. And I also want to give it plenty of time to clear. So when I, when I see... The fermenter stop really going when I can't see any bubbles coming up in, like I don't see any bubbles moving in there. You're still getting some CO2 release, but you're not even seeing any heavy real activity. I know that that yeast has munched away at that fruit or herb or whatever it is about as much as possible. I want to get it off of there because there are certain things that might be in there that eventually it can extract. Just think about making tea. 
You take some great Earl Grey tea or English breakfast tea, pour some boiling hot water on it, wait about three minutes and take it off of there. Fantastic, wonderful way to start your day. Forget about it. Come back in an hour and it tastes like crap because you've extracted all the tannin and you've unbalanced it. It tastes like, well, crap. It doesn't just taste really strong. It, it tastes like crap. Well, it takes a lot longer to get some of those things out of things that don't have a lot of tannins or don't have a lot of off-putting characteristics. But you wait long enough, you start breaking cell walls down enough, etc. You start to take out some things that you'd really prefer not to have. You lose some of the brightness, too, of the fruit or the herb contribution. So we're going to ferment until it stops act heavily fermenting, usually about two weeks. We're going to rack top, and then we're going to ferment that for as long as it takes until it goes clear and loses all activity. So there's my answer to three mead questions. So the next one I'm not going to go very long on comes from Tim, and I've seen several of these things in uh, Kickstarters and stuff like this, and it's on smartsavingeconomy.com, air cooler. The link for a product claims to cool down at least a room. The technology Is this technology sound? Maybe time for a Steve Harris rant. Uh, thanks, Tim. I'm not going to send this to the Harris because I think he'll have an aneurysm and die. Uh, these are these little boxes that claim to be personal air conditioners, and they say something like, we can cool a 45-square-foot room. Um, no, you can't, and I have a link to this product. If you want to look at it, please don't buy it. Um, and you can't cuss thermodynamics is why. So let me tell you what the device is and what it actually does for real. runs on a very small amount of energy. This one in particular can run on a USB cable plugged into a computer, for instance. So you know you can only get so you can only draw so much power through a USB port. Um, so it is a very low energy device. It has a little fan in it. It blows. It has a little reservoir you fill up with water. That water then goes across a, a membrane that, as the air blows through the water, the water evaporates, thereby cooling the air. You can experience this for yourself by sticking your arm in a swimming pool and holding it up in the air. As the water evaporates off your arm, your arm will feel like it's getting cooler because at least at the skin surface where the evaporation is occurring, it is. It works. It does it. This is an old technology. We call it an evaporative cooler. It's a real thing. If you go out to West Texas, you will see them all over the place. And you'll notice something about them. They look like big, giant, square, weird, funky-looking air conditioners, and they're all where... They're all outside of the house. How does this work? Well, when it blows that water, blows that air through that water, and that water evaporates and allows the air that comes out the other side to be cooler, the, t the, the heat, the, the differential has to go somewhere. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed, only changed in form. The heat goes into the water vapor that's evaporating. If it's evaporating outside your house and the air outside your home is, let's say, 90 degrees and the air that's coming out of your evaporative cooler is something like 78 degrees, which is reasonable to do for real, um, then you have 78 degree air coming inside your house and you have evaporation, transpiration going up in the air, taking the differential heat with it. The water is being warmed by the same amount that the air is being cooled in the opposite direction. That's why, you know, everything works this way. You go put your hand behind your refrigerator, it's hot back there. It's making cold by extracting heat. Got it? So, if you set one of these things inside the house, little or big, and you have the, the, the evaporation going on up, and the heat transferring into it, the air that comes out of the hole is colder 
but the air going up is warmer. They cancels each other out. If it worked as good as they say it does, and it don't, it would still be a net net. It would be a net zero in the room. Now there's actually a tiny bit of electrical use going on there that actually is producing a tiny bit of ambient heat, insignificant, but yet it makes my point. It's even worse than it sounds. So if you had a giant one of these things outside the house blowing in, you could actually cool a room somewhat in the right climate. If it's very humid, these things don't work worth a shit. That's why you see them like crazy out by Lubbock, but here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you don't see them at all. It would actually work fairly good this time of year when we don't even get dew on the grass, but there's another six months out of the year that you have requirements for cooler temperatures here that you need true, honest-to-God, good old-fashioned air conditioning, or your life will be miserable if you live in the state. So no one uses them here. They don't work. They don't work. They don't work. They don't work. They don't even work good for what they're, they, they could be good for. Theoretically, if you pointed it at your face, it should cool you down, and it will. So will an $8 fan from Walmart. While the air coming out of the little cube device that you paid $100 bucks for or something stupid like that will be colder if you measure it with a little infrared gun. That air will be colder. They move at such a pathetic velocity that the added velocity from a $8 or $9 fan from Walmart will cool a human better than one of these will. So it can't even do what it does right. Don't buy it. Don't fall for it. And I know what somebody's going to say, but Jack, I saw this video, and a guy had a, a cooler and one of those cheap fans, and he filled it with ice, and he blew the fan into the cooler, and then there was an exhaust vent, and the air that came out of the cooler was cold. And he actually showed the temperature in the room even went down a little bit. But boy, it cooled him off when he pointed it at himself. He was sitting there shivering with goosebumps. Absolutely. It will work. It's not the most efficient thing in the world. It's a good thing to know how to do. It's a great science project for your kids. And in a small office or something like that, it can make a significant contribution to keep your room cold. Plus, as you have a freezer anyway, if you uh, did something like put all that ice in bottles, and when they melted, you just took the bottles and put them back in the freezer, you'd have an endless supply of cold thermal batteries frozen bottles of ice though true ice would work better you could always dump that into an ice tray or something and refreeze it I don't know Okay, but you'd never even run out of water that way but what's happening what's happening why does that actually somewhat cool the room not just the person that's blowing on well first of all it's a lot more efficient we're blowing air at speed across ice, and we're literally chilling the air now, not just creating an evaporative effect. But we're actually having a very mild evaporative effect, if at all. We're having very little evaporation. Everything's in the cooler. The warm air that's coming in, the ice that's becoming water is acting as a heat sink. The warmth is being dissipated into the ice and eventually to the water itself. When the water comes up to a certain temperature and there's not enough ice left, it'll stop really doing much for you, and you have to put new frozen ice in there. But the ice, the water, has become a thermal bank. So instead of exhausting heat into the room, it's absorbing heat into itself, at least to a degree, sufficient that you can actually get a few degrees of cooling under the right circumstances in the right room. Using what we, used, we used to build these in the Army. We called them hooter coolers. That worked pretty good. The Hooter Cooler was one of two things. They're almost like this. We built these like in the shop buildings in Panama. So you could at least when you're working on something, sweat just on your face, you'd have it blowing on you. Uh, and then the other thing that was a Hooter Cooler, which totally unrelated, was when you took a cardboard box, throw your beer in it, and throw ice in the cardboard box. 
I don't know how the two got the same name, but they did. Anyway, these things don't work. The next time you see yet another one on Kickstarter, do not share it with anybody. If somebody tells you you're going to buy it, tell them not to do it. It doesn't work. It's scientifically impossible for it to work. And they're not new. They're not new. Did you know they're not new? Huh. See, I have one of those crazy freaking memories. And even as a kid, I used to watch shit that kids don't watch. Like in the 1980s, I used to watch 2020. And I remember John Stossel got one of these things back about 1985 or 86, somewhere in there. Probably 86, about the time I was in high, just getting into high school. And he looked for the smallest room he could find. A phone booth. Remember those with the doors that closed? He tried to cool a phone booth. He tried to cool a phone booth. But Jack, son comes in a phone. He had two of them sitting side by side. He had a control and an experimental group. Remember that from school? And the one with the mini air conditioner in it, it actually got warmer than the one without the air conditioner in it. It actually warmed up the damn phone booth. I don't know if you rem if any of you are you know maybe not old enough to remember the days of the phone booth that you went inside and closed the door, but there's not a lot of space in there. If it won't cool a phone booth, it's not cooling a 45 square foot room. It doesn't work. It can't work because thermodynamics is why. And can you see why the Harris would have absolutely had an aneurysm if he had been asked to do this one? Hell, it even got me riled up a little bit. Um, next up, one of my favorite idiots. I mean, really, like, if you want proof that democracy doesn't fix things, Jack, it's a republic. Okay, if you want proof that a republic, a, a democracy in the form of a constitutional republic doesn't fix anything. You can end up with people electing people that shouldn't serve in office. All you got to do is take a, a look at the track record and, and, and the vocabulary and the positions of Representative Maxine Waters, who's been around forever. This lady is a moron. I mean, I don't agree with Trump on everything, certainly. I don't even agree with him on most things. But when he says this woman has a low IQ, he ain't kidding. This woman's an idiot. And the problem with being an idiot and a liar is you forget your lies and then you're an idiot so you repeat things that are different than your lies and then you look like a bigger idiot than you honestly are. Because you can't keep your story straight because you got too low an IQ to remember what you said in the past. And you got too low an IQ to remember you're supposed to keep your mouth shut about the things you're really doing and so you let them come out at times. So this is an article from The Hill. Representative Maxine Waters says the Democrat Party is not the Socialist Party. Representative Maxine Waters said Wednesday that the rise of more socialist candidates doesn't mean the entire Democratic Party is embracing socialism. In an interview with John Harwood of CNBC's Capital Exchange event, Waters, one of President Trump's most vocal critics, said that Democratic socialists such as Senator Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are simply Democrats who focus more on protecting America from Wall Street. Quote, I just don't think. Let's stop right there. That's the smartest thing Maxine Waters has said in two decades. I just don't think. Unfortunately, there's more. I'm sorry, there is. I just don't think that our party should be identified because we have a few people who seem to be on the left of the left. Yes, Bernie Sanders calls himself a democratic socialist, but he votes with Democrats. He does not want to get out of the democratic lane, Waters said. 
I think I consider him basically a Democrat who's focused on Wall Street and talks about Wall Street an awful lot and wants to make sure that Wall Street is not taking advantage of the average citizen. You know how many times she said Wall Street there? Jesus. Anyway, she continued, Waters added that attacks on Republicans accusing Democrats of embracing socialism wholeheartedly were going too far. Quote, I think that's an exaggeration. See, now you screwed. See what I'm saying? You couldn't keep your story straight. You said you didn't think. You were right. Now you're claiming you do think. No, you don't think. You really don't. I think that's an exaggeration. The Democratic Party is not a socialist party, Waters said. Democrats were rocked last month when the number four House Democrat. That's what people don't realize how big a deal this is. This is the number four ranking House Democrat. Representative Joseph Crawley, New York, was defeated in his primary by Ocasio-Cortez, who ran to his left. Boy, you talk about somebody who looks like she has a lower IQ, man. This girl. Jesus. Wow. Since then, uh, Ocasio-Cortez is what I'm talking about. And Sanders have teamed up to campaign for progressive candidates around the country, speaking at rallies in Kansas this week for a few local Democratic challengers in the traditionally GOP-held state. You can read the rest of this if you want to. There's, there's a problem here for Maxine Waters. Yeah. I'm about to play something for you from 2009. 2009, the price of oil was going through the roof. And uh, the ass clowns known as our Congress, uh, decided to do a little dog and pony show, and they brought the oil executives to Washington to testify in front of Congress so they could all get their five minutes of shame, I mean fame, and grill them and look important like they were fighting for you, the little guy. Representative Maxine Waters then had her turn. In a moment where I guess she forgot to take the meds that she's on, the truth came out. These are not my words. Here are the words of Representative Maxine Waters herself on the floor of the House addressing an oil executive who had just finished answering one of her questions. Guarantee to the American people because of the inaction of the United States Congress ever increasing prices unless the demand comes down and the $5 will look like a very low price in the years to come if we are prohibited from finding new reserves, new opportunities to increase supplies. And guess what this liberal would be all about? This liberal will be all about socializing, uh, um, would be about basically taking over and the government running all of your companies. Now, I did take this from a YouTube video. You need to go watch the video. There's another representative sitting to her left, as you actually to your left as you view it, her right, who in the middle of this you can see realizes what she has said and what she's continuing to say, to say and the face this person makes, I don't know which representative it is, it's priceless. It's, it's like, holy crap, wow, I can't believe you're saying this. Right? So she tried to fix saying she was going to socialize oil by saying, well, what I really mean is use the, the government will take over your company and run your industry. This is pure socialism. This is her running her mouth for socialism on the floor of the house. I want you to think about this. Then I want you to go look at this article, look at this picture of her. It looks like she's trying to divide two divided by two and not getting an answer. And then go watch this video. 
These are the people with major seats of power in our constitutional republic. And, man, if nothing else, do we need freaking term limits? Good Lord, but I don't know. I find this delicious. I do. Do you have this person saying to call the Democratic Party socialist is going too far? Well, almost 10 years ago. Not this new wave of this stuff. Almost 10 years ago. She was threatening oil executives with socializing the oil industry, with nationalizing the oil industry. And when she realized what she had said, she covered it up by saying exactly what she meant, which was take over the oil industry with government. It would be the epitome of socialism. One of the largest industries that we have. Gotta love this person, man. And uh, this 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 new chick, this Oxio Cortez. Jeez, I, I'd I'd like to see them take like, I'd like to see those two play trivia, on geo you know glo global events, geoeconomic trivia, between Maxine Waters and Oxio Cortez. That would uh, and and a a a a eleventh grader with straight A's. Who do you think would win? <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, there's your comedy for the day. Let's move on. All right, next one, I got a question from Chris, who's thinking about starting a podcast. He said, Jack, what's the easiest and least expensive way to start a podcast? I'm thinking about starting a podcast that talks about common man or woman level success stories and struggles of day-to-day -day life, fitness, and health. We all enjoy hearing about the kid that grew up to become a superstar, but what about the guy or gal that clawed their way up in life, started with nothing? This might be dumb, might be fun, who knows? It's an idea. And I would eventually try to slightly monetize this just as a side hustle to start. Thanks, Chris. Well, let's talk about the idea first. I think it's a fantastic idea. You know, um, success stories are something that everybody working for success wants to hear. Because if they can, I can too. Right? I mean, that's, that's just a, a, a fundamental reality that people intrinsically know is true. If I look at somebody and I realize that that person is in no way you know, massively superior to me. We're not talking about somebody like a Bill Gates or something with some kind of amazing tech mind or a Steve Jobs or something like that or any of those people that have incredibly high IQs and, and incredible work. He's a normal guy that just says, I want more, and damn it, I'm willing to do what it takes together, and they get there. Normal gal that does the same thing. Then when you look at them, you say, well, okay, if that person can be successful, I can be successful. So I think it's, it, it's a great story, and most of the... Most of the books that like incredibly successful business people write, even when they're not the common person, they always try to present themselves as the common person because it's a good hook. So the idea is solid. Now, execution and idea are different. So this is going to involve like like your your biggest problems are not technical. Your biggest problems are discipline, finding the people to talk to, adhering to a schedule, and just effing doing it. Those are your problems. The technical problems are something you can answer for yourself in a day searching YouTube. But I'm going to give you the shortcut to that so you know what to search for, because I can't do a whole show on just how to do a podcast. Most people get bored. You're going to use a blog. You're going to use WordPress. You're going to spend money to host it. You're not going to do it for free. Right? See this as an investment in yourself. You got a couple hundred bucks in a year of hosting from someone like HostGator or a similar uh, web host. You can usually get them to install a WordPress blog for you for free as a hosting client. Many of them have, um, basically in the control panel, 
they'll have quick install features and think or Fantastico or something like that, where you can push a button, fill out a form, and have your blog installed. You're going to buy a domain name, commonmanstoriesofsuccess.com or something like that. And you're going to set up a blog if you're going to do a podcast. WordPress has everything in it you need to be able to attach audio files, upload them, and syndicate out through what's called RSS, RSS, which is really simple syndication. That will get you into Stitcher and all those other things and iTunes and all the other places you can submit yourself. You can just look up and learn how to submit to all those things. So once you get your blog set up, get a couple episodes in there, then you're going to go submit everything. You're not going to worry that much about graphics at first. You can record with a program called Audacity. It's free. You will need, and I don't know why they call it this, but it's the lame DLL file to convert to MP3 because Audacity generally wants to do an output as a .wav file. Okay, That's fine for all your editing work, but when you put it online for people to listen to, you want to go to MP3 because you have a much more of a file compression there and a much smaller file. A .wav file is huge. You don't want that. Um, so you'll need to get that lame DLL file. When you install Audacity, first time you try to output it as an MP3, it'll tell you you need it. If you're doing this on a PC, it is incredibly easy to do. I did it once on a Mac. It was hard. I couldn't figure it out. I finally did. I'm not still not sure how I got it to work, but I did. But if you're using a PC, it'll be easy. There's a lot of editing software out there, but Audacity is probably all you need to get started. So you're going to use that to do your editing. You're going to output it as an MP3. You're going to upload it to your server. You're going to attach it to your podcast, and you're going to put it out with some notes, just like I do. Uh, for recording, I recommend you get yourself a decent condenser USB microphone to plug into your computer. Or use an earpiece and use your iPhone. Then you can record in MP4 format on your iPhone. Though I don't know if Audacity handles that file format or not. I'm not sure. I would record to your computer using Audacity. That's what almost everybody starts out with. And some of us, we stay there. The microphone I use is a Samsung CO1U. It's under 100 bucks. It's a damn good microphone. You don't have to go that good, but I would. So, yes, you'll have three, four hundred. This is kind of like this business question I answered last week. You know, I said, you know, if you're going to start a business, consider a thousand dollars a minimum investment. You're well under 500 bucks here. Well under 500 bucks. And that includes getting a little bit of graphics work done once you get rolling. But, I mean, I say this to everybody when they're like, well, I want to do a podcast, but I'm not sure. Listen, the technical components are so simple. They're so simple. And there's so much instruction that the problem is there's too much instruction and everybody has an opinion of what you should do. All you need to know is how to record a reasonable quality voice recording to get started. And then you can use something like Skype and Call Recorder to do interviews if you're going to do that. Uh, or there's something that, that all the podcasters are using except me now, and I do need to get on board with called Zoom. And you can use Zoom, and you can record and get your files out of there real easy. And you can start doing interviews. And that's probably what you're going to want to do. In fact, you may not even, well, you're going to need Audacity at least for your editing. Zoom is where I would go. Z-O-O-M, just like it sounds. P.O. Box, whoa, one, two, three, four. What was, I don't know, remember that show on PBS back in the day? 02134, that's right. Send it to Zoom, Boston Box, 02134, that's it, right? So you get Zoom, and you, you, it will give you MP3 recordings of your calls. Then you can do your intros and outros or whatever you want to do without your guest, with Audacity, publish with WordPress. There's, there's probably not an easier way to do it. To get out communications, an, an iPhone with video, and basically do vlogging on, on YouTube, 
is about as easy as it gets. I mean, that that's that's you know you have what you need to do that, but that's not really a podcast. So so I would take the approach that I just gave you, and I know you're probably looking for me to give you links to everything. I'll, look, I, I know this. I've been through this so many times with so many people. Every time somebody starts down this road, what they're really saying is, I want to do a podcast. Please intellectually masturbate with me so I can talk about doing it and pretend that the technical aspects of it are the hurdle. I started this show with a Sony MP3 recorder that you can go buy right now at any Best Buy or anything like that for about $30, bucks, and a, heads, a Plantronics headset you can buy for about $20, bucks, plugged into it. It came with software that downloaded it. And all I had to do was edit it. And editing was basically put some music on it. That was it. And you don't have to get all of these. Like you don't try to emulate what I do now, 10 years into it. Emulate what I did in the beginning. You have a communication story. And there's a lot of ways you can do this, too. One of your big problems is going to be getting guests court, you know, scheduled and stuff like that. So what you can do is you can just basically create interviews and send them to your potential guests Let them fill them out, and then if you have any follow-up questions, send them that. And that way you can sit down and just record them. You can start out just yourself. Our featured, you know, our, our featured talent today is Joe Blow. Joe is currently the owner of three tire shops in Sheboyganville, Idaho. Here's how he answered his questions I had. Here's what I think about those answers. And you could, you could start busting them out. If you don't, you don't really want to do it. It's not a technical hurdle. Eight-year-olds are doing podcasts. You can do a podcast. The key is doing the podcast. Next up, this comes from Elisha in Amarillo. He says, do you have a reading list you would feel especially shaped or influenced you, which you would recommend for a high school-age young person? My husband and I uh, have, so I, uh, have a 15-year-old young man who, by the way, is a fan of yours also. Fortunately, he has had opportunities to develop many skills lacking in his peers growing up during uh, the building of our ranch. He already has a handle on everything you listed on the episode of what every 14-year-old should be able to do. We're just wondering if you could recommend a reading list which you felt especially helpful in shaping uh, the person you are today. Thanks for all you do. Um, thanks for putting that kind of trust in me, and I'm going to do my best for you. I'm going to give you a very varied um, list of things that I feel like have really influenced my life. And some of them may not quite be appropriate for a 15-year-old yet. Maybe they're a little bit down the road. I'll kind of point them out as they go. I'm going to give you a mix of books on adventure, books on religious, spiritual philosophy, I guess you could say, and books on economics and, and business. And those are the areas that I think most of us need to be impacted. Again, some of this might be at a level that maybe you're not comfortable with for your 15-year-old. I'll point that out. I'll also point out that I am cognizant of the, the fact that probably 80% of my listeners are Christian and probably half of that number seriously Christian. Like, go to church every Sunday, that type, and, and like, so it's an important part of your life. I respect that. I don't share that. So the stuff that's coming from the spiritual world may not be the stuff that you would particularly choose. Um, but I actually think they'd be beneficial to anybody because we learn by seeing things differently, not by seeing things reinforced as what we already believe. On that note, the first two books I'd recommend for anybody that wants to kind of change the way they see the world 
with an understanding that this is all thought experiment stuff. You can't take any of this literally. I don't even think the author means it literally. Um, but the author is Richard Bach. And the books are Jonathan Livingston Siegel and Illusions. Bach has a bunch of other books. Some of them are pretty good. None of them are as good as his first two. He had a, a certain magic that he got out of the first two. Uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel is about what it sounds like a seagull that decides he wants to learn to fly like a falcon. Doesn't want to live the mundane life of a seagull and is ostracized for it. Um, and crosses into various spiritual uh, planes. And as he begins, first he's ostracized, then he has followers. Sound familiar? Okay. And uh, eventually he progresses on and goes to the other side of the other side. We'll leave it at that. It's a very interesting story. And it talks, it really helps shape breaking out of limitations will always put you counter to people who are comfortable with theirs. That's one of the big lessons you get from it. Illusions goes a step further. You probably most of you kind of got the narrative that was going on there. Um, Illusion starts out with with an incredible little short story about an insect type creature, a little pond creature at the bottom of a creek, and it's just a little bit, and it's all greasy looking pages, like it was written by a mechanic. And then it goes on to a story of Richard and a guy named Donald who they meet in a field and they're flying passengers in old barnstormer-type airplanes for $3 a ride. And Donald is, what would Jesus be like if he showed up today? And they walk on the water together. They talk about thought forms and all types of things like that, the power of attraction, and many other things. It's an interesting story. Neither of these two books should be taken literally, but they are incredible for expanding the mind. And I wish I had read them at 15 instead of 25. Uh, and I think it would be perfectly acceptable for a young person to read, and I think you could read Jonathan Livingston Siegel in about an hour and a half, and Illusions in about two. All right. Next would be a book called The Celestine Prophecy. We're staying in this spiritual world for now. Um, one thing you got to understand is James Redfield is not a good author, but this is a great book anyway. All the rest of his books go from bad to worse. This book is kind of haphazardly written, but it's an interesting story. He's not a good writer, but he's a good storyteller. It's a good story. And it goes well into the woo-woo by the end of it. But the concept are these nine prophecies being revealed to society. And it's the first four to six that are the most concrete and real. And one of the things that you'll learn in this book is the concept of control dramas. And oh God, I wish I would have read this when I was 15. When you can recognize the other individual's control drama, you can avoid being pulled into it, and we all have one or more, but we all have at least one dominant one. And they are aloof, and poor me are the passive ones, and there's interrogator and intimidator, and these build on the work of Jung, um, that are the, the aggressive ones. And if I would have known this, I, as a kid, I would have been like, hey, my dad's an aloof, my mom's a poor me, I understand that shit, so now I need to see to my own things, which I kind of did, but I was going blind. And so this book, on the spiritual side, goes well out into the New Age realm of La La Land. Though it's, if you read it as science fiction, it's a fun story with some cool stuff you can learn. The stuff on the way human beings interact, the concepts of coincidences, control dramas and the energy within human beings, and things like that, is actually based on solid science and psychology. Very, very valuable. Skip the rest of his books. I've read them all, hoping they would come back to being awesome And they didn't. 
right. Uh, there's also a business lesson in the Celestine Prophecy. No one would touch his book and publish it. He paid to have 2,000 copies self-published back when that was not easy to do and gave them away and became a national bestseller. So there's a business lesson there as well. The next would be The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. Uh, Millman is another author who I think got addicted to the money and just started churning out stuff. Way of the Peaceful Warrior was one of his first books. It's outstanding for understanding the way to approach life as a spiritual being. Really appreciate that book. Now moving on to some stuff that's a little bit adventurous uh, and fun. Um, Use Enough Gun by Robert Rourke. This book I did read when I was 15. I checked it out from the Pottsville Area High School Library, and it, just going to say it never got returned. And uh, the, 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 the library charged you for what they paid for the book, and they had bought the book in the 60s, so they wanted like three bucks for it. So I just paid the lost book fee and kept it. And that's how I have a first edition. Of, okay, I'm sure the statute of limitations is up, and I technically didn't break the law, but I, I still have that book. And that book is also a good story by a writer that's not a great writer. Um, but it talks about hunting in Africa shortly after World War II at a time when the old Africa was still somewhat there, when you could still go out and hunt the Big Five and stuff like that. And it's not politically correct at all, but then maybe you actually understand the times it was written in. And it was the book that made me, when I was 15, 16 years old, And I was crawling over a shale bank on the side of a strip mine, scraping up my knees as 15, 16-year-old Jack Spierko with a 22 rifle that I still own. And cresting that hill and looking at 80 yards and seeing on a slush dam a crow eating some dead thing it found. And laying those crosshairs just over its shoulder and pulling the trigger. And that moment in my head, I was Robert Rourke stalking Cape Buffaloes put a lot of adventure in my soul. Later in life, I discovered a guy named Peter Capstick. Writes under Peter Hathaway Capstick. He's got a lot of great books. He is why I even know what Bill Tong is. That's why I first learned about Bill Tong in one of his books. He was a writer for Sports Afield. He has a lot of great books, but probably the book I would introduce somebody to him with is Death in the Long Grass, which are the stories of him working as a professional hunter and an elephant cropping officer in Africa in the 1960s and 70s. Um, again, a lot of stuff not politically correct, but it is the way things were. And a lot of facing and dealing with potential death, hence the name of the book. And I think that would have been a good book. I wish I had had that to go with my Robert Rourke book all the way back in the 1980s when I was a kid. Moving to something a little bit different somewhere in the middle of the spiritual and the adventure and the crazy, um, I'd recommend anybody read who hasn't the Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. This is one that I don't know if your 15-year-old is ready for yet. There's a lot of SEX in this book, okay? And there's a lot of drugs in this book, too, right? Though that does tend to get a kid that age to be willing to plow through a book of this size. Because it is, I mean, people like, well, I was a kid, I read Harry Potter. When I was a kid, I read Illuminatus Trilogy. Illuminatus Trilogy is like five as far as the size of the books in one, it's actually three books. And you learn a lot about psychological control mechanisms. It's kind of placed in the 60s mostly, uh, trippy type stuff, bounces around in time, supernatural elements in it, some ple stuff completely plausible, some completely preposterous. 
Um, all the organizations that think they're working against each other are actually controlled by one organization. But you find so many things in this book that, you, that, that when you saw it happen, you thought where they were original ideas, and they ripped it right out of this book. There, there was a, a thing called Sequest or something like that in the 80s. It was on TV or maybe the 90s where there was a talking dolphin in a submarine, and it, that's right out of this book. Like, every conspiracy theory is in this book, but tons of science fiction ideas and concepts have come out of this book. And the upshot to the whole thing is, characters in the book end up going out and saying, I see the Fenords. And there are pieces of misinformation buried within information in the news, in the media. This book, though it's set in the 60s, is more true today than it was back then. And I think it's an interesting book, and I think Robert Anton Wilson is a pretty amazing author to begin with. Uh, next up, Going in the World of Business. And I have a lot to say here, so I'll go fast. Selling the Invisible by Harry Beckwith. This might be a little bit difficult to your 15-year-old to listen to or read, I'm sorry. But, man, if you can sell the Invisible, you can sell anything. It's all about selling services or insurance product or something like that. It sounds kind of dull and dreary. It's really not. Because it's not about the product at all. That's the whole point. It's about understanding how to interact with people, forming relationships, seeing value and conveying that information to others. It's a short, easy-to-read book. Out of all the sales books in the world, it's probably the most powerful one I've read. Next, if you're going to get anywhere in life, you want strong, powerful networks. The best book I ever actually found on this is really not a book. It's an audio program. And I don't know if maybe it's available online somewhere where you wouldn't have to buy these old cassette tapes. The 15-year-old might not even know how they work today. But it was by Harvey McKay, and it's how to build a network of power relationships. When I got into sales, I got a copy of this audio, and I must have listened to it a hundred times till it was worn out. That's how valuable I thought it was. So the concept is the more people you know, the more leverage you have with others. And not necessarily, in, you think of that as in like a negative way. He talks about in this how like his daughter simply wanted a job in, in at, at college and a bunch of people were com competing for this job uh, that was basically slinging beer and hamburgers at a, at a local college bar. But what she was able to say, well, here's my network and a lot of these people live here and if I was there uh, working, they would come visit me. She got the job. Sometimes it can be that simple. Sometimes it's a lot bigger. He also talks about how he used those networks to get publishers to order more of his books, lots of other things like that. He also talks about how solid networking is what made, for instance, George Bush Sr. President of the United States. He talks about how Reagan and Bush were both great networkers. And it's incredibly powerful. And it's one of those things that maybe as a 15-year-old, if you're listening, since your dad says you listen, you might not think is up your alley, but you master this before your peers, and they'll be working for you. Next up today, this book is a scam. It's still an exceptional book, an exceptional story, and it opens up so many parts of the mind. Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. There's no rich dad. There's no poor dad. There's wealthy, middle-income dad, and that's all that there ever was, and that's Robert's real dad, who he calls his poor dad in the book, and his friend's dad was the rich dad. And it's written through the narrative of what it was like being a kid, growing up, going into the military, coming back, concepts of business, investments, and how to think about money. I would say that in spite of the fact that the whole book is a scam, presented as a, as a true story, though it's a whole, wholly a fictional story, by a guy who probably never made any money until he wrote the book... 
seriously. It's done more to open people's eyes. So while I would, I would advise you to pretty much ignore the rest of Robert Kiyosaki's books and seminars, for God's sakes, definitely, um, that book is a fantastic launching point into the world of understanding that there's different ways to see the world as an employee, as a self-employed per- person, as an investor, and as a business person. And understanding that quadrant and way of thinking changes so much about how you view the world and what goals you really set for yourself. So I would definitely recommend it. On the same note, Richest Man in Babylon by George Clausen, which came out during the Great Depression. Still the most valuable book I know of on the building and maintenance of wealth. Good news, the entire audio book is available for free on YouTube. You can look it up, or you can get an actual copy of the book and read it, which I think would be very good as well. Now, I started out with books on being successful. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Richest Man in Babylon, How to Build a Network of Power Relationships, Selling the Invisible. Kind of the big view of building tremendous financial success. I want to balance that with two books. One, Possum Living by Dolly Freed. Possum Living is all new and updated with some things that Dolly said back in the 70s that probably weren't good ideas. Uh, and an explanation of why she said those things and why she says they're not good ideas now, and they were more from a legalistic standpoint than a practical standpoint. Dolly does not live the full-on possum lifestyle that she was living when she wrote that book today. She lives a fairly normal life, but yet still is very frugal. Uh, she's actually worked for NASA since writing the book. The book was about how her and her father lived on less than $10,000 a year. Uh, in the 1970s, it was still a pretty big feat to do. Uh, Dolly Freed is a pen name, as you might imagine, as in Freed. Uh, she was only, I think, 16 when she wrote this book. It became a national bestseller. It didn't hurt that it was released into the middle of the recession of the 1970s. It's still well thought of and well read today. It still does well on Amazon bestseller lists, etc. today. And uh, she did this all with a typewriter. So not only is the lessons that are in the book, but the lessons of the book's existence and success itself, it's a good thing to get into your head at 15. And she was only a year older than you when she wrote the book. The next book, the guy that actually wrote it has been on this show. He was an astrophysicist that basically quit. He's retired today. He's not even 40 years old. His name is Jacob Lung Fisker, and the book is called Early Retirement Extreme. I actually think that the lifestyles dictated in the early retirement extreme and possum living are way too far to the frugality side. I like my life. I like being successful in business. I like having money. I like being able to buy stuff, right? I like doing well. But I like balancing with enough frugality. And I think looking to the extremes on both sides help most of us find happiness where we're going to end up, which is somewhere in the middle. So I think those are good books. Now, bonus, all of Dan Brown's books. Uh, They are fantastic reading. I'm just finishing Origins right now, which is the latest in the Robert Langdon series that started with Da Vinci Code and did Angels and Demons and all that other stuff. Um, I have a link in the show notes to all these books. On that book, I have a link, or that one I have a link to, like, Dan Brown's author profile. Brown tells amazing stories, and it's a good way to trick yourself into learning alternative views of history. Some people get really wrinkled in the nose because... The, the book starting from the Da Vinci Code on, I'll kind of see, except for one, really, the Catholic Church is the enemy in the book. And not really the enemy so much as the protagonist. Um, but there has to be a protagonist in a book like this. And when you understand the storylines, it's really not another good entity with enough power to be the protagonist. 
And in the last one, they're really not even the, the... Well, I don't want to ruin it for you. But I would tell you that the two best books that Dan Brown ever wrote were before he was so well-known with the Da Vinci Code. They were Digital Fortress was one, and then the other one, what the hell was that called, real quick? Um, Deception Point. These also invited, involved a lot of symbology and codes and understanding of the inner workings of government. One takes place in D.C. Fantastic stories. And what they allow you to do is experience fantasy grounded with reality. That's what I love about Dan Brown's books. There's a lot of other authors I really love. I don't know how formative they would be. I, I, I really like Brad Thor's work. I, I got to meet him. He came to my house a few years ago, and uh, I was like, I don't know who this guy is. And Steve Harris knew him, and he's like, it's Brad Thor. And I'm like, okay, who's that? He's like, Brad Thor. I'm like, you can't just keep saying the guy's name. I don't know. right? And he's a great author, some great books, but I wouldn't call them formative. They're like complete like, you know, fantasy books and stuff like that. Um, you probably I don't have this in my list, but you probably should read at least Skim Art of the Deal by Donald Trump. It's actually a ghost-written book. It's not a good book, but the core of it is Trump's thinking, and that makes understanding our president's actions something you can do instead of listening to either side that's like freaking out one way or the other about it. You understand the basic rationale of what's behind it, and a lot of people that operate that way in the world, especially in the world of business, it's good to know that people operate that way. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying it is. Uh, but those are some ones I'd recommend. If you have a book you'd recommend for a 15-year-old young man, uh, let us know about it in the show notes today, in the comments section. Thanks for that one. That was fun. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Okay, remember, guys, if you want to help support this show and the work that we do, the easy way to do that, do your online shopping where? tspaz.com. Just when you get online, you're going to buy something online, you want to just shop around and see what's available, go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com. When you get there, you can see all the reviews I've done broken down by categories and what have you. You can also just jump on over to Amazon and see the deals of the day. You can figure out whatever you need from there, and whatever you do, once you go to T-SPAS first, you help support our show. But I always have an item of the day review for you, and today I have one I'm really excited about. This is Chef Paul Prudhomme's Blackened Redfish Magic Seasoning. I had forgotten all about this guy, Chef Prudhomme. This guy was the centerpiece of like how to cook TV shows in the 80s. You know, the 80s, when we didn't have cable. We had like PBS was where you got something other than the network's Played, and he was on PBS. You turn your rabbit ear a little bit to the left, and his face would clear up. And maybe you had to put a little piece of tinfoil on it. And there he was, this big old fat Dom DeLuise looking guy, cooking awesome food. And I remember watching him learning how to cook all kinds of cool stuff instead of just ruining meat the way that my grandparents did. And uh, he was a cool dude. And I forgot all about him. I went fishing with my buddy Omar and Patrick from Empty Knives and my buddy Thad from the military. And uh, we went out and we got a bunch of stripers last week. A lot of you guys saw the pictures on Facebook and what have you. And we were talking about how to cook them. And Omar, the guide, man, this guy's awesome. He's luck of the Irish, luck of the Irish guide service. Uh, Omar Cotter, amazing guy if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Spend the money, go spend a day with him on the lake. We caught all these fish, you know, by 10 a.m. And 14 stripers. It actually was 12 stripers and two hybrid stripers. And I was talking to Thad about how to cook them because he had never cooked striped bass before. And Omar's like, yeah, throw them on the grill with this Chef Paul's, you know, redfish magic. And I didn't even think of who the guy was at the point. And so I, I, I texted Omar after the trip. I said, what did you say to put on that? And he told me, and I looked at him, oh, I know who that guy is. 
So I ordered a can of this stuff. I was eating it in pinches out of the can. That's how good this stuff is. And I actually have a clone recipe from one of Chef Perdome's books that somebody posted on Amazon in the review today if you want to try making it yourself. I say buy it because it's just freaking awesome. Um, I had never actually blackened a fish before, at least on purpose. So I, I got this stuff, and instead of doing Omar said just cooking it on the grill, I looked, well, how do you actually use this stuff? You take the fish fillet, you coat the fish in some butter, you coat one side with the, uh, the seasoning, nice and heavy coating of it. You put butter in a pan, you heat it up till it's almost smoke or starts to smoke, and you lay the fillet seasoning side down in it. You get a brush and brush a little butter on the back side of it, hit that side with the seasoning, cook it till it's two thirds done, flip it over, cook it till it's finished, and while it's finishing, you take a spoon, tilt the pan, and just you know spoon some of the butter over it. Typical technique you do with steaks or something like that. And uh, as soon as it's done, you get it out. Holy crap! It's changed my changed my worldview on on fish. Oh my god, I want to, I want to like buy like 10 different fish to cook with it. So far, I've just got this stuff last week. I've cooked snapper, I cooked striped bass, and I cooked catfish. The, the, the striped bass was amazing. It was the best piece of striped bass I've ever had in my life, especially that I've made myself. The snapper was really good, really meaty. It worked great with it. The catfish was good, but I might have cooked it a little too long, or I just the catfish may not hold up as well these really high cooking temperatures you use. I think mahi... Mahi would be the the epitome of this. This would be the gold standard to do with it. Uh, salmon would work well. Tuna would do well, but it's hard for me to cook tuna when I know it's best sliced thin, cold with ginger and wasabi and soy sauce, so I may never find out. Uh, swordfish would work. Cobia would be phenomenal. Uh, but I've tried other things with already. The day we got it, I didn't have any fish out. I'm like, I tasted it. I'm like, I want to try this. I was doing steaks, so I was doing some roasted carrots in the oven. So I took some carrots. Hit the carrots with some olive oil and sprinkled this stuff on the roasted carrots and did the roasted carrots in a convection oven uh, so they get nice and crisp on the edges. Oh, my God. This stuff is the bomb. I'm going to have to try some of his other stuff. I'm probably going to pick up the book that that clone recipe came from. That's in the show notes, too. Uh, but this stuff is awesome. And, you know, I, I kind of look at it this way. This Chef Paul guy, I, I'm really excited to see that his seasonings are this good. Because when, when, when Omar told me about this, honestly, I was like, yeah, whatever. Because I was thinking like Tony Saturies. You know, it, it's, it's powdered salt with some cayenne pepper and garlic in it. You know, it, it's, it, it doesn't taste bad. It's just, I mean, why would you use that when you could make something so much better yourself? This, as soon as you open it, you look at it. You realize you're looking at whole spices, you know, either ground coarse or whole or, you know, depending on what it is, how, how you want it to be. It's all the way it should be. Um, I got a 24-ounce tin of it. For like 15 bucks. I didn't realize how big 24 ounces would be. I probably won't need any more for a long time. Uh, you can get a smaller bottle of it to give it a try. But this guy came out, like I said, 70s and 80s. He, he almost made redfish extinct. Like people thought redfish, people don't know this. Back in the 70s, redfish were considered trash fish. They were drum. That's what they are. And when, when this guy popularized blackened redfish, he didn't invent it. He popularized it. That's when they started to put all these restrictions in on because people were just slaughtering them. Uh, and to see something around, because he left us in 2015, and a guy that I watched and learned to cook from when I was a kid, you know, in like high school and grade school, uh, still have an awesome product with his name on it. I think it's pretty cool. I'm uh, kind of proud to have it at T-Spaz, and I'm really grateful to Omar for telling me about it, and you guys got to try this. You can tell I'm a little bit jazzed about it, 
And uh, I don't get easily jazzed up about a pre-mixed uh, seasoning mix. I'm pretty big on making my own. That brings us to our song of the day. I'll go quick today because we went long. Uh, it is by Golden Earring, and it is called Radar Love. A couple things about this song that are interesting to me. One, it is one of the all-time great driving songs. I mean, I don't know anybody that really likes to get in a car and drive and take a real road trip on a road that actually bends, that, that doesn't have this on their playlist. I mean, it's just because it's about driving, right? <laughs> I've been driving all night. My hands are wet on the wheel. Right? I mean, it's, it's about you get everything. Up. The, 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 I think a lot of people like even love this song. Never really thought about like what, what is this song about? Well, this song was written, I think, in '69 or '70. It came out in '73. There was no cell phones. There was no pagers. The concept is this guy's driving back home to his babe, his honey man, trying to get back to his girl, and they've got a thing called radar love where he can actually feel it through the air that she's waiting on him. Because you couldn't just always constantly text and communicate. Remember those days? Then there's this band that's not awful, but they're not good. They were big time in the 80s. They were one of the 80s hair bands, White Lion. Probably their, their biggest hit was called When the Children Cry. It was one of the 80s ballots. Um, they did a cover of this. I think the majority of people my age and younger that know about this song know about it because of White Lion. We can give them credit for that. However, you don't always say that like when you have a song that's been covered and you have this difference of opinion on it, it always depends on when you heard it first. Like whoever you heard it first from, that's who you think's version is better. So you'd think like all the older people would say, ah, it's golden earring. And then you'd think all the people that are like, you know, tail end of Gen X, early late millennials, you would think they would all be like, ah, oh, no, no, it's White Lion. No, 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 no. No. I think there's a unanimous consensus here. <laughs> The original was the best when it came to this song. Last, this has a video you got to see. This must have been one of the first videos that, that were ever made for this song. I mean, you talk about low production volume. It's just basically this dude driving this crappy-ass car. Um, it looks like it's England, which makes sense, based on where the band's from. And get and by the end, getting pulled over by the police and then running off with the female police officer. And it's not even that it's not even as good as I described. What makes it worth watching? This guy's driving a reliant Robin. Now, those of you who've seen the video or no cars just went, oh my god. Or, oh yeah, that's right. You know, the rest of you go, what the hell's a reliant Robin? <laughs> the dumbest car ever conceived. It has three wheels. Yeah, three wheels. It's completely preposterous. The guy driving the car looks like he's about in his early 50s, dressed up in like old school British driving attire, like like pre-World War II. The whole thing's just stupid, but it's it's comical and it's fun. And if you didn't know what a Reliant Robin is, where do you see one? I defy you to show me a stupider car. If you can, send it to me with TSPC in the subject line, and I'll admit I was wrong. I'll do a Jack was wrong, dun-dun-dun segment. And tell people with the dumber car. Now, it has to be a real car. It can't be something Billy Bob made in his, his backyard or something. It has to be a car that a company put out that they were serious when they thought people would buy it. That, that's what I'm, not a concept car, a real production car, dumber than a Reliant Robin. I'd like to see it. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
been driving all night, my hands wet on the wheel. There's a voice in my head that drives my heel. I'm almost there Gotta keep cool now Gotta take care Last car to pass Here I go And the line of cars Drove down real slow And the radio played That forgotten song Brandly it's coming on strong And the newsman sang His same song I love her. 